My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Welcome to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morales. This week, our guests are some of the greatest people I've ever known in my life. I've known them for about nine years now. I hope I can do justice to drawing out the value of who they are and what they do. They're a remarkable team and are truly changing the world one person at a time. Jim Micheletti and Mia Mirasu direct campus ministry at Palma School, an all-male college preparatory school in Salinas, California. Palma is an Edmund Rice Christian Brothers School network with schools across the globe. The mission at Palma is for boys of promise to become men of character. A Catholic school, Palma challenges students to be the change they wish to see in the world. An essential element at, an essential element at Palma is for students to stand in solidarity with those marginalized by poverty and injustice. Jim and Mia lead immersion experiences with students to Mexico and Peru to build homes. Locally, students load and deliver food and other goods to migrant farm workers in the Salinas Valley. Students visit the elderly with Alzheimer's and contribute head, heart, and hands in a long list of causes for peace and justice. For the, last, for the past nine years, Palma has partnered with Soledad State Prison with their Exercises and Empathy program. In this program, Palma students and their brothers in blue read literature, share their own transformational stories, and build a no-excuses mindset. World-renowned journalist Lisa Ling recently filmed a documentary on this unique partnership for her show, This Is Life, which will air soon on CNN. Palma enjoys a productive relationship with the crop organization in the business of hope. Jim and Mia, welcome to the Prison Post. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. Right. Thank you. Now, normally, um, I'm not the only host here. We have uh, my co-host, Jason Bryan, as well. And he couldn't make it this morning because obviously his wife, well, it's not too obvious to our audience, but to you two, you know that his wife has been in labor uh, this evening. And yeah. this morning, <laughs> this morning uh, she gave birth to a young, oh. a beautiful boy, Tristan Kobe Bryant. And, normally I'd be able to, to, to post it to the screen, but I'll have to do it a little bit later. Let me see if I can show it here. Oh, my oh. gosh. There he is. Congrats, wow, Jason. And what Andy. a blessing. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Great, great, so, great. Thank you. That was them just a, a few, literally like two hours ago. Wow. So we want to welcome Tristan Kobe Bryant to the world. We're ecstatic. Uh, Brother Jason was, in, was incarcerated for over 20 years and to come out and have his second child is just nothing short of a miracle. Awesome. <laughs> That's a great way to start. Wow. Need a little more light in this world today. Just got it. Oh, for sure. So congratulations, Jason and Sandy. Congratulations. Yes. Can't we're wait. happy little Jax has a big brother now. Yeah, that's right. What a cute kid. You guys know Jason well. We'll talk about some of the some of the ways that you were able to uh uh build a relationship with Jason. And and we I just mentioned a little bit in the in, in your bio about Lisa Ling and how the three of you uh, happened to connect in a, in a, in a way that was truly unprecedented in the state of California. But um, Jim, I know you love quotes and uh, you say you've probably shared so many of them that uh, Mia is <laughs> probably tired of hearing some of them, but okay. there's no. a, no, <laughs> never get tired. No. Jim was a guy who, who got me into um, holding a, keeping a book like this everywhere I go. 
so oh, I yeah. can write down notes. <laughs> you got a few of those handy? Oh, you too, huh? Okay. Yep. Always, uh, always got to be ready to to take down a note, a quote, um, some type of memorable experience. And <laughs> anyway, yeah. But uh, I know you love quotes. Uh, there's a famous John John C. Maxwell quote. He says, "It takes teamwork to make the dream work." Amen. And I know that you guys are one of the one of the best teams that I've ever that I've ever come to know in my life. And and I wanted to know a little bit of the background there. Would you be willing to share with our audience? Our audience is largely made up of the loved ones of the incarcerated, uh, family and friends who care about restorative justice. And 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 how did you guys come first come to start working together? And and what's a little bit of your background story? Well, thank you for that. What a great introduction too. I really appreciate that. And of course. Uh, what a great way to begin with Jason. You know, Jason Bryant, um, he often says, uh, I experience you. When he talks about people, he says, I experience you. And uh, we like to think of all people as an experience, right? All people are, are sacred. And uh, it's good to know that um, the carceral population and people dealing with uh, mass incarceration, that we stand with them right now in this, in this broadcast here. So thank you for that. But I'll let Mia, and oh, by the way, um, we do have Matt. We, we, we don't have our mask on right now because we've been working together in a very close office uh, long before the coronavirus came. So, uh, but we are responsible that way. But I think Mia should speak to how we first met and, and got launched together. That might be good. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, hey, Mia. It started when my middle son uh, was, I think, a sophomore at Palma and came home and said that, uh, hey, I have an opportunity to go to Peru. And so my husband and I were like, oh, okay. And through that process of trying to do fundraising for the students to get there, um, I met uh, Jim and we just kind of, I offered one day, hey, do you need some help? And he was like, yes, that'd be great. So I started to volunteer, you know, a day here, a day there. And then the volunteer uh, turned into a couple paid days. And then it just kind of escalated from there because we were able to just kind of grow the program, not just with the immersions, but with the service that we offer the kids either after school or different times of the year. So it just was something that evolved into a bigger and better thing. And I'm very, very lucky because I'm one of those people that I love the job I do. A lot of times it's not a job. There's a lot of paperwork, but um, I really do enjoy my job. I'm very, very grateful. I noticed that some of the things that you shared in, in in some of our back and forth before the before this conversation was that you had uh, three sons actually attend and Palma and it was there at Palma that you found your vision, you found your passion. Yeah, um, I have uh, three boys. Um, my youngest is twenty one. I've got twenty five and twenty seven year olds, and I think or maybe twenty eight. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> Um, and they've all gone to Palma. Um, when Jim came to campus, uh, my oldest did not experience um, Jim being the campus minister at that time. But when Jim arrived, everything changed. And I, like I said, I was kind of oblivious of what was going on until my son Henry came home and started kind of revving up on what Jim was offering as far as service programs. And then my youngest, Oliver, um, I'm really, really excited because he was able to go not only to Mexico, Peru, but he was also able to participate in the prison uh, exercise and empathy. And to be able to share that with him is was really profound. And my oldest has also been able to come in a couple of times as well. 
That's awesome. Go ahead, Jim. You had something? Yeah, you know, Richard, um, I'm thinking of Henry Marisu, um, Mia's son. Uh, one thing that he got involved in right off the bat um, was we would go after school every week to a place called the Center for Life. And actually, it's a, a safe haven for students uh, in a gang-stressed part of Salinas um, who uh, get some help after school. And they would go and we would tutor the kids and they get a snack and that kind of thing. And they'd be off the streets. And Henry uh, was very dutiful with that, among other things we would do. And then lo and behold, he goes off to university, studies child psychology, education. Now he's getting a master's degree. And um, so one thing wow. I appreciate that God gives us is uh, planting seeds. You know, um, we, you never know what experience the student's going to have. It's going to launch a whole life direction for them. And we really believe in the classroom of the world. Some of our best experience, experiences for kids and with kids happen not in classroom walls, but in the classroom of CTF Soldad Prison or at the Center for Life or Peru or Mexico or with our good friend Richard here. <laughs> we want to talk about that for sure. But I, I noticed that uh, you shared uh, the immersion experiences and, and someone once said that you can always tell what someone's vision is by looking at their actions. So when I hear that, that the actions of, of Palma School and some of the, the, the service work that you guys have been a part of to travel to Peru, to take students to Peru, to take students to uh, Mexico and, you know, to the to the uh, to visit um, patients with Alzheimer's disease, to, to feed um, uh, farm workers in the Salinas Valley, you know, and just all those things. But speak to the immersion experiences. What are those and, and how did that first start? Do you want to go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, well, immersion, first of all, we like to call it immersion. Uh, you know, there's a language of mission, and mission is fine. And to be a missionary, we understand that. But sometimes mission or campus ministry even carries the connotation of we have it and we're going to give it to those poor people who don't have it. And uh, that's antithetical to kind of who we are and what we believe. Um, immersion seems to capture the idea better of taking people out of their comfort zones and taking them to the developing world, which sometimes might even be just across the, the street <laughs> or a different part of town, right? Um, an experience far different from their own and walk with the people. It's not service to so much as doing with. So when we go to Mexico and Peru, um, the solidarity piece really is building with families and getting to know families. And, you know, we're trying to build relationships as much as we are at home. People definitely need homes. They need the dignity of space. We get that. But the greater dignity is being heard and standing with people as equals. And so it's really important in Mexico and Peru that the families are involved in the construction. So when we're wow. nailing, we want the families there involved. We don't want them standing off. We want to do for people. We want to do with people. It's really Man. about that piece. That sounds amazing. What, what, what were some of your most memorable experiences of working with families in that way? Oh gosh, so many. Um, do you want to start? I yeah, I I, <laughs> I knew that was going to come. I I don't really have a one specific, but my favorite part of the immersions because we've been to Peru, I believe, seven times and oh my God. Mexico, uh, eight or nine times. Um, and for me, my favorite part is always the reflection at the end of the day, because that's where you really get to see and hear what the students have experienced and I always learn from them because you're seeing it through a different a different set of eyes, ears, smells. They talk about everything that they discovered that day. And it's really a transformation that I'm I'm very grateful I get to witness. 
Um, and then to see them grow and appreciate everything around them when they come home, as well as appreciating these new relationships that they have, um, they've made with these families. And most of the families that we've come encounter with, whether it is Mexico or Peru, when we go back, we always reconnect with them. And, um, so it's an ongoing relationship, which is wonderful. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's, there's another quote that says people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. Yeah. And yeah. even though there may be different barriers through uh, at, at times, but one of the well, the greatest barrier, in my opinion, that breaks down all, all walls that separate is love. And yeah. to have somebody come and, and, and help them not build a home for them, but build a home with them is just a phenomenal right. thing. And, and to go so many times, you know, when you were saying that, that you've gone uh, seven times and nine times. What I thought about was uh, one of the one of the stories that I read in the Bible is about Moses when God told him go. Hmm. And you guys, you guys have gone to Peru, to the inner city, to to uh, Mexico, and even to Soledad, where I spent eighteen years in two months. And hmm. I, I for sure want to talk about that. But real quick, you know, I know people out here, including my, and people in my own family, and and no knock on them, but I mean their kids. Uh, it would be hard to get them off their phone uh, and Xbox or PlayStation for. <laughs> For a few hours, how do you get a? How do you how do you motivate high school students to leave out there for the amount of time? And how long are you guys out there? Well, we do take their phones when they get there. When they get there, oh. tech-free zone, man. We we park that stuff. But uh, I think uh, Richard, having been at this for a while and having been humbled and having fallen down a lot, you know, we learn from our, our falling down. We kind of fall up in the world, right? We learn from those lessons. And um, I think in terms of it's kind of evangelization really is like how we kind of win people to um, this idea of advocacy and and love of others and love of neighbor. Um, we do it the same way you're doing it right now is I think through a smile and through joy. Um, there's so many uh, really profound moments of deep joy. And I would, I would say joy over happiness. Joy implies something different. It's got more staying power. Um, and that's what we hear from the kids who go, the kids who park their technology and give human beings face-to-face a chance and, and hear their stories, uh, they walk away transformed. And there's a deeper kind of heart smile that stays with them because of that. And they're more likely when in their back in their hometowns, when they see the person homeless asking for help, they're more likely to engage the person. Whether or not you give the money, that's your choice. That's fine. I get that. But at least engage the person with a smile and recognize the person's humanity and hear that person's story. Right. Uh, it's the silence. Uh, no conspiracies of silence that get people in trouble. Um, I did want to tell one quick story, if I can, about. Sure. Peru. sure. Uh, you know, it's nothing but a story gathering event. So many things happen there are so profo- profound and transformational. But for me, we were in a very poor area called Hikamarca. Uh, people there are literally dirt poor. Uh, they will sometimes take tires and light them on fire and to crack the rocks in the hillside where they put up a little shanty, a little shed, and that shed becomes their prized home. We were in a neighborhood like that one time, carving into a hillside, trying to create more space for a man named Jose and his son, Kevin. While we were doing that, we didn't really know it, but Jose's wife um, was dying in the next shack over from leukemia. She was in her 40s. And uh, we had just met this family. And so here we are working, we're digging, we're sweating, we're doing good muscular ministry, as I'd call it, you know. Uh, I love that with the guys. And then uh, he said, hey, go over. I want you to say goodbye to my wife. Say hello to her and say goodbye. She's dying of leukemia. I had just met this man. Wow. 
And so we went over and she's lying on, on a mattress on a floor on this basic concrete pad. And she was so gracious to us. She smiled. We held her hand and the family was around. And instantly, these people who are the dirt poor had dignified us in, in their most serious time when a loved one is going to die at a young age. I'll never forget that. I was schooled in deep humanity at that moment. And she passed. And, and the sad irony is, you know, where you live often decides whether you live. If she were in the States, she would have had a hospital and cancer treatment and all kinds of things. But because she's poor, none of that happened. She dies. But she died with so much dignity and love. And to be included in that love uh, was one of the more profound experiences of my life. Oh, wow. That's phenomenal. And I, I think about how that story impacted you to you carry it with you today, able to share it. What about the students? Does do do you have some stories of of seeing how this impacted their life where now they're they've gone on maybe to college to live in the real world or some type of a, a vocation and now they're living their life in a in a way that, that's given back? Do you see that often? Yeah, we do. We do. Do you want to speak to um, that? I have a few. I know that um my oldest was able to come to Mexico on one of our Mexico immersions. Um, he never was, we never were allowed to, not allowed, but we didn't send him when he was in high school. So um, he was able to come a couple times while he was in uh, college and then after he graduated as well. So, and he, that was good to share because he got an opportunity to share those experiences and we've had other alumni come back. Uh, the trip to Mexico, um, we also get other families, their parents, dads, moms will come with us as well. So a lot of times it becomes a family thing, not just taking the students. Um, and there's always, again, in that reflection, there's always a, a transformation of wanting to, and at some point in their lives, they do make a difference. And we've heard time and time again, that that is one of their favorite parts of being at Palma. There was, you know, that was the best part of Palma for them, whether they went to Mexico, Peru, or both. You know, Richard, awesome. you're a fan of quotes, as you know, I am. Thank you for remembering that. And uh, there's that line, I think it's St. Saint Augustine who said, pray not for a lighter load, but for stronger shoulders. And um, we intentionally disturb kids. When we go to Mexico or Peru in particular, they're way out of their comfort zones. And uh, in Peru, they do hard labor. Uh, it's not just work. It's real labor. Uh, in fact, um, we have to build homes in these, um, up these steps. There's no roads where we are. And so the city um, has put in steps for people to access their little shanties, their little sheds. And so we have to carry all the equipment up sometimes 150, 200 steps before we assemble these homes. And the kids are doing it. And the kids are schlepping bags of concrete um, up these steps, the whole deal. And, and it's the hardest work they've ever done in their life. And many of them will reflect on that. Like, um, you know, work is love made visible, especially when you're working for the benefit of others purely and cleanly. Um, and I know Mark Beach, I'll celebrate Mark Beach, one of our students. One time we were carrying a, a wall up these steps and the steps, excuse my language, you know, that they've got dog shit on them. It's dusty. It's dirty. We're slipping. There's low electricity wires because people will sometimes tap the city um, electricity with coat hangers. And they often will shock themselves to death doing it. But it's oh, a primitive electrical grid. And you see low wires. So we've got dog crap on the steps. You've got low tension electrical wires. 
you're sweating, you're trying to carry this thing up these steep steps. And, uh, and lo and behold, Mark Beach is moving the backside of the wall and a dog, wild dog runs up and grabs his pant leg and starts yanking his pant leg. <laughs> and I'm going, and I'm trying to hold the wire with a two by four so my kids don't get shocked. And I'm going, man, Palma, God bless Palma. This is the real, <laughs> this is the real grit. This is, yep. this is the dirty Christ on the hill. This is the real thing, right? Like yep. they'll never forget that. And Mark Beach um, who was being attacked by a dog and thankfully he didn't get into his flesh. Um, next thing you know, he goes to Notre Dame University and he's off into he's off to Africa uh, doing work there, working with the poor. He climbs Kilimanjaro. He goes off to Israel and his life's on a permanent kind of adventure um, trying to elevate humanity. And, and I want to think, again, by the grace of God and the goodness of this Palma School vision we've been blessed to be a part of, that seed was planted there, right? Oh, yeah. Steps. Definitely. There's a verse also that says uh, one man plants another waters, but God brings the increase. You know, in the, in the restorative justice movement, we hear that the, the term the school to prison pipeline. And it seems like it seems like at, at Palma School, um, based on my experience with you guys and the stories that there, you guys created something really special there that, that could be carried over to other schools. You know, it seems like there's a school to college pipeline going on there. So what types of things you've talked about, you know, the, the service uh, ministry aspect, and that seems to have an, a lasting impact. But what are the types of things are is Palma doing to um, cultivate students going to college instead of into the lifestyle, sort of like I did, culminating with a prison term, the drugs, the violence? How are you guys getting a hold of them in a different way than uh, some of the other schools? I would say, you know, it's really important at Palma that we are intentional about every student uh, knowing his worth. Every boy at our campus counts. And we show that continually with with handshakes and we insist on handshakes and we insist on a good handshake. I like to call it a culture of handshake. And obviously we've been very challenged by social distancing because everything at Palma School is designed really to smash social distancing. You know, we gather in our chapel and prayer and, and the guys, you know, exchange signs of peace. Again, uh, we encourage guys sit up straight, square shoulders, be confident, listen. And the expectation is one of respect um, and, and know that you are created in the image and the likeness of a God who is love, who has gifted you with great promise. And so uh, find out what your unique contribution to the world is going to be and know how powerful that is. And I think a lot of character education boils down to uh, young men, particularly at our school, because we're all guys, but I would say the same of young women, is, is knowing, find the God light within you. You have something special to give that's powerful and good and pure. Realize that about yourself. We see that in you, and we're, we're going to see it in you until you see it in yourself. We're going to see it in you until you see it in yourself. I think that's kind of the essence of character education, if I'm reading it right, which is very important to us at Palm. Yeah, I think about a, a book that I read about uh, the life of a former NFL defensive lineman called Season of Life. It was about a, a man. I, I've shared a little bit of his story with you, Joe Ehrman. Mm -hmm. And he said that, you know, a lot of us are growing up and I can relate to this. We, we were taught uh, uh, something the opposite of what you were sharing right now. And, and it was, you know, that statement that that a statement that shapes so many boys in America, which is be a man. And it's yeah. never defined. It's never defined. Well, what you get when you get from that statement is, you know, men don't cry. Suck it up. Don't be soft. Don't be a sissy. Don't be this. Don't be that. It's always framed around a don't, but it's not framed around a do. 
And, and I think in, in so many ways, we try to live up to this false idea of what it means to be a man. But what's it seems to be going on in Palma there, um, based on the results of Transformed Lives, is they're getting a, a, a true idea of what it means to be a man. Joe Ehrman lined it out in, in, in several ways. He says, what does it mean to be a man? It, 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 it speaks to how you live and how you love your character and your love. And then he says, and beyond that, living for a cause that's bigger than yourself. Yeah. And you're connecting them to causes that are bigger than themselves in, in, in their local community, in, in other countries. And I think that that does something special. You know, if I, if I, so many more need that. And I think other schools could adopt it. You know, there's, um, it doesn't have to be all about uh, funds, but uh, there's, there could be other ways besides the, it could be after uh, volunteer. Right. Yeah, Richard, you know, you and your brothers, uh, particularly when we were inside and, and engaged a lot, and I heard you speak uh, inside CTF Soledad, and you would quote Ehrman, and you would talk about toxic masculinity, and, you know, Ehrman's big on the three Bs of the other side. The, the downside is pulling on men, saying it's all about the billfold, the bedroom, and the ball field, right? The billfold, the bedroom, and the, the ball field. If you succeed in those things, then you're going to be that real man. You're going to be a man, right? Um, right. And those come up empty. You can't target your life on that and feel like you're going to have any meaningful purpose. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think your man, Ehrman, is, is one again, one of those prominent voices in character education that we need more of an education entire for sure. Yeah, I think as, as young as young men, we there's something he talks about that we do. We compare and compete and, yeah. and compare, you know, like you said, the billfold compare the ball. Who's a better athlete? And you can be a better athlete, but that doesn't make you a better man. You, know, right. you can have more money, but that doesn't make you a better man. So yeah. what Passion. I, and I've seen, go ahead, Mia. So I was just saying that you're compared, compete, but the compassion part is missing. Right. Exactly. So we need to build up uh, uh, that compassion aspect, aspect. And you guys do that through your, your program called Exercises and Empathy. And I, and I like to share that, that, that I, one of the biggest, one of the books that, that impacted me the most while I was incarcerated for 21 years was a book called The Criminal, uh, Criminal Personality. And what it said was, is that when people are committing crimes, they're cutting off empathy. And, 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 and it's very, I don't think, it, I don't think it ever happens that when, if you're empathizing with someone, you're not committing a crime against them. You're not mm -hmm. robbing from someone. You're not taking from someone because, you know, Jim, you know, everyone knows the definition of, of empathy, which is. Um, putting yourself in another person's shoes and experiencing what they're experiencing. But I remember you, 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 you sharing another definition is your pain in my heart, your pain in my heart. If, if, I, if I was going to take something from a store, steal from a store, steal, rob somebody, if I could consider, if I considered in that moment, what it would cause them and the ripple effect that it would have on the, on the store, uh, the clerk, the, you know, on other people's lives and their family, uh, the long-term effects, I wouldn't do it. And so we cut off empathy. But like you said, putting compassion into these young men, what do you, how do you do that? You open up the channel of empathy. So would you talk about how, Mia, at first, when did you guys start going, going into Soledad State Prison, also known as Correctional Training Facility, Facility C, to do your exercises and empathy program? What's, what's the story? How did you guys come up with that? Um, we were kind of tipped off for, uh, by our local mayor, Dennis Donahue, um, had got a hold of Jim and said, there's a, a gentleman, was it, um, Borla, Lieutenant Borla. Um, and so we called him up and asked if we could come in and, um, I'll never forget that day, mm -hmm. um, walking into the gym and there's, you know, over a hundred men in blue there. And, uh, 
we sat down and we talked and, and we kind of came up, it was sort of very organic of how it all happened. It just, we came up with this program. Um, Life cycle was very welcoming to be a part of their program. And we sort of did a collaboration of going in, doing readings or writings or uh, discussing quotes It all based around literature. And um, we started going in, bringing in a few students. Uh, every now and then some parents would show up. We'd bring in some staff members, community members, and it just continued to snowball from there. Um, and so, so far it's, it's one of the most proud things I have that I'm a part of in my life because other than my kids, I just, I feel like this is a very profound thing and it's, um, it's gotten bigger than we've ever dreamed and hoped. And we just hope to keep pushing along and we'd like to get it into other, other facilities, but I'll let Jim speak more. I know he's itching to. Yeah. Jim, would you share a little bit about the structure, how it works uh, and the format? And, and the first one that I remember was we, was we were reading John Steinbeck's book of mice and men. I don't know if you did one before that, but what, what was the, what was the, if there was a one before that, what was it? And how many have you done since then? And what's the structure of the program? How's it working? Well, we were very, uh, I keep using this word intentional, but a lot of thought went into this, that uh, literature is really important because, um, our students, obviously, at a college prep, they have to read literature. We all have that high school experience of reading books. And sometimes we connect with it if the teacher's effective. And a lot of times we don't. You know, kids will kind of fake their way through the book. And I thought from my students' perspective, how can we repurpose or revalue literature in a way that's really going to be meaningful to students? And um, I found that students going in to read of Mice and Men or The Grapes of Wrath and sitting in little groups because we sit in little families. So when we go in the prison, life cycle had this all in place for us. You know, everything that we were able to accomplish, we were able to accomplish because so much good work had been done by the guys inside, right, from the ground up. We simply grafted ourselves onto their program, um, and they allowed that to happen. Um, but the literature was powerful. So we, we, we share a book, and we break off into families, usually 8 to 10, maybe 12 people in a circle, and discuss questions based on that literature. And I saw the literature coming alive in a way it wouldn't in a classroom. And, and I can give you an example of that. Um, one of the more profound moments I have um, from the prison that I will never forget is we were reading The Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck's epic book, The Grapes of Wrath. And um, The Grapes of Wrath is about a parolee, right? Tom Joe gets out of McAllister uh, State Penitentiary in, in Oklahoma. It's like the very beginning of the book, he's getting out of the pen and he's on the road with his family who are fleeing the Dust Bowl. Terrible drought comes in Oklahoma. The family has to pack up and go, and he's trying to get reunited with his family. And I remember we were reading about that early in the book, and a guy, one of our brothers in blue, stood up. We were talking about the drought and the Dust Bowl, and he said this, and this is something you would not hear in a high school or college English classroom. He said, you know, um, Tom, the Dust Bowl, the drought, all that. When I shot that guy in that other gang, I put his entire family in a drought for the rest of their lives. And I, I, I paused and I listened to that and I looked at my students and they were leaning in it in a way I typically do not see students lean in in class. And what he was doing was he was teaching metaphor. The drought is a metaphor for something bigger than the physical event back then, right? We all find ourselves in drought at a time. And he was showing empathy. He was saying that he was he had gotten to the point in his rehabilitation where he was very aware of the impact of his crime on others. 
And for me as an educator, I thought, what a beautiful example of teaching empathy to other people, because you could see the emotion in his face when he was talking about putting their whole family in a drought, right? And I know the men inside, particularly in Lifecycle, Phoenix Alliance, I can name a lot of programs. And to go to, to the board, they've got to write letters of contrition. They've got to sit down and pen and think hard and sincerely about the people they've hurt. I want our students to think hard about their impact on others and people they may be hurting they're not aware of, particularly when it comes to race, socioeconomics, class. You know, can you can you feel another person's pain in your heart? Are you willing to carry some of that? And can you carry it joyfully? That's the challenge, right? I was able to participate in some of the exercises, empathy uh, families and small groups. And I remember sitting there with, with five or six uh, of my incarcerated brothers in blue and, and seeing that we probably had two or 300 years to life uh, amongst us. And here we are sitting with three or four um, 10th, 11th, uh, 12th graders. And we're reading uh, of mice and men. I remember the grapes of wrath. And I remember that at the, the culmination of grapes of wrath, we were able to watch the movie in a big screen uh, in the gym there. Something that um, I don't know if that had happened in 20 years uh, in Soledad before pulling down the dusty big screen and, and watching it in the gym, you know, and, and to be able to watch that with the students and people bringing in a popcorn and just, uh, uh, you know, cheering and, and watching the, and the movie and seeing how it related to our lives. But for me, it had a profound impact on empathy sitting in the, sitting in the group. I remember a young man named Kevin, uh, he was in 10th grade and we're reading this book together and, and he is going in there with the express purpose of adding value to our lives. A 10th grader is going into the prison saying, I want to give to these guys something. And they always say, we want to share something with you guys, but we got something out of your lives. Yes. And <laughs> so, and I said, well, what do you want to do when you, when you, when you get older, you know, what do you want to do with your career? And he's like international business. Hmm. And that was something that, that I had never, I never heard of the only international business I ever heard of was some nefarious type stuff. So, <laughs> so I was really <laughs> impressed, but I noticed that all the lifers amongst there, you know, on the main line, when you're in your on the everyday prison life, probably empathy, empathy isn't the, the go-to emotion to express on a daily basis. Empathy is something you want to, because of the toxic male environment, you want to not talk about emotions and feelings and all that. But once guys get amongst there, amongst those students, something happens and mm -hmm. uh, the community becomes the method of, of mm -hmm. transformation because they say, I don't want this young man to grow up like I did. I don't want him to think like I did. And so they began to, they begin to tap into their, to their empathy and something may, really profound happened at Soledad. So much so that you guys eventually caught the ear of, of, of Lisa Ling and, and um, she came and did a story on it. I'd like to hear about that, but first Jim or Mia, what was your experience of, of uh, like Jason says, what was your experience? What was your experience of the students going in for the first time or every time you guys go um, when they go in, what they're thinking versus what they're thinking after that first one or the second one? Um, I think a lot of times because um, we usually ask them when when they've gone in for the first time, like, you know, what did you think? And a lot of times we hear, you know, well, I was a little bit afraid. Um, it was kind of scary. But the minute they get in those small circles, it just all falls. And it's it's one of those programs. And uh, this is one of the things that we tried to express with Lisa Ling. Um, until you go in and experience, it's a yeah. very hard thing to explain. 
Um, cause she kept, you know, what do you, what are you guys doing and, and how does it work? And, and it's like, you just have to come and see. And so gratefully she was able to send a few of her producers out and, and then it became very clear, but, um, it's one of those experiences you definitely need to be in the space, but usually, uh, most of the time the kids come in, I would say 99.9% of the time they're itching to get back in. And it's, yeah. it's not because, Ooh, I get to go into the prison. It's I want to get back into my small family and we don't call them circles. Um, when they're not called groups, we are a family and you've got your small families and then we've got the big family. And, um, and they are very adamant about making sure that you don't, uh, associate it as a group. It is, it's, it's family. And these guys have an immediate connection to our brothers in blue. And it's just, um, for me, I just like sitting back and watching the whole thing happen because every time we go in, Jim and I will walk out of there and go, that's gotta be one of the best times we've ever had. And then next week we go in, that's gotta be the best time. And so it just keeps getting better and better. Mia said, come and see, you know, and we're really uh, deliberate about that. Come and see spirituality, uh, the experiential component. Uh, I'm so glad when CNN came out that they sent the directors first, were able to get them inside and they agreed right away. Wow. We got to get the cameras and record this remarkable relationship uh, unfolding here. Um, but again, you need the sounds of the gates. You need the constant kind of buzz of the prison. I don't need to tell you about the sounds of the prison, but there's this constant hum going on, right? Of activity and feet shuffling in the hallway and all that. And I don't want to talk too much about it and take you back to a place you're done with. Um, but there, there's a, there's definitely, um, you know, a sensory thing going on there that kids need to tap into to really understand it. And I think a lot of education really kind of works that way. Uh, we read out of books. We talk about ideas in the classroom. Uh, but do people really kind of get the idea? You know, there, there, there's so much to be learned by actually being there and being present mm -hmm. and particularly in an environment like that. Um, and that's what we hear from kids, too. You know, like all the students will say, just come, come. You, you got to come now. And they invite their parents. And they invite their friends. And now we've got, uh, you know, when we go in there, we have to say, well, we can't we can't keep taxing in prison. We can't take 100 people in. Um, and we're giving the warden a great problem. You know, hey, we got all these people who want to come in and learn, you know, yeah. and build family. That's what we're talking about. It's really an emerging solidarity. And who would ever have thought that college prep and men, a lot of them serving life sentences, would have so much to say and learn from each other? Who would have thought that? That's so hopeful. Yes, it is. Jim, you know, I think about some of the audience members maybe hearing this right now. It's like, man, I don't know if I would send my son into a prison. They have these ideas from the 80s of the scared straight programs and things like that that certainly don't work. And 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 exercises and empathy is the complete opposite, totally antithetical to anything like that. But would you talk about the young man who was so impacted that he ended up going on to Yale and studying political science? And you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, Nick and Tony, right? In fact, we right. know the Tony family well, brilliant parents, brilliant kids with huge hearts. And uh, yeah, he was very much inspired by it. He was part of the first wave that went in and we he created a little book. He was really the force behind it. He and Mark Beach, some other students obviously played a role, but um, he was the editor. We had a little booklet called Brokenness and Blessings. And it was uh, student writings on their relationship with their fathers and it was inmate our brothers in blue writing on the relationships with fathers. And we kept all the passages, all the little anecdotes in there, always little paragraphs, page long writings, anonymous. 
So you didn't know if you were reading about a college prep student's relationship with his father or somebody inside a prison, his memories, his memories of his relationship with his father. We did that on purpose. Now, sometimes you could tell, obviously, by the writing, um, right. but it, it was it was a really powerful thing. And I think Nick gained a lot of traction from that. Next thing you know, when he went off to Notre Dame University, he was involved working with carceral populations in different places. Uh, it stayed with them. You know, one thing I often say is, can you say you've really learned something if you don't remember it afterward? A lot of times we sit in class, we're taking notes, and a lot of this goes in, maybe comes out for the test, and it's gone. This one stays with them. The guys go in there, and they remember, and they're going to go on to positions of power. Kids who go through Palma, they're going to be power players. They're going to be legislators. They're going to be CEOs. They're going to be in those positions. And they're going to run those positions of power with a sense of the powerless and people who've been marginalized and, and hopefully run those positions of power by being more inclusive and loving, kind and democratic. One of the things we find, too, Richard, is um, a lot of the guys that graduate from Palma, when they come back, whether it's for a spring break or yeah. whatever, and they know that we're going in, they always ask to go back in. So um, it's not just the students. They come back as alumni wanting to go back into the program because they know how profound it was when they were there. One last thing, Richard, too. I'm sorry. Go you, got me, you got me caffeinated. You got me caffeinated. Richard. <laughs> Let's go. You, you said, um, you know, the parents who say, boy, I don't know if I want my kid going inside a prison. And thankfully we haven't had too much of that. Um, but I would, I would challenge a parent and say to a large degree, your son already is in a prison. There's a lot of contamination in society. A lot of society is confining your young man in a mindset about the bedroom, the billfold, the ballroom, and that being exclusively what male identity is about. We go inside the prison to find freedom. And the freedom is that I am deeply connected with my brothers in there. We are one human family and people cannot be thrown away. To throw away men in prison is to throw myself away. That's where we're trying to go morally. Thank you for sharing that, Jim. You know, I always say that I had to get free in there before I could be free out here. Mm. And one of the things that I wanted to share along the lines of, of this book reading pro project is that before going to prison, I never read a full book on my own. And I don't remember reading one book in high school or junior high. I have to go back to like third grade to, to, to even remember a teacher reading a book out loud to us. I don't remember any books and I didn't read a whole book before going to prison. But while I was there, I was able to get a hold of books and I made a goal to read 500 books. And I don't say that in an arrogant or prideful way, but I surpassed that goal and went on to, you know, nearly get my bachelor's degree and read 700 books or so. But, you know, I was in prison for 21 years, as I shared. And when you guys came in, something beautiful began to happen with book reading. You would see guys walking up and down the corridor with mm -hmm. books in their hands and everybody's talking about this story. And I remember a mice and men, the story about Lenny and and how the book how the how the book ends and what he what he chooses to do to his friend to in a way save his life, and the conversation that it sparks in there, and people if those who really care about restorative justice and true rehabilitation know that it begins with uh, a changing someone's heart, changing someone's way of thinking, and the and the and the exercise in empathy truly does that. Um, and the other thing is, is you talk about you and me, it's not just you and me going in, but your faculty and a lot of the family members of the, of the students and a lot of the parents of the students. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I remember about you guys and about Palma is that you guys dignified us and treated us as humans. And that's very rare in prison. I could count on, 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 on one hand, 
the when I experienced that from anybody who was not incarcerated in there to 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 smile at us, to talk to us, Mia, the 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 motherly touch, the encouragement that you have, that is an empowering feeling. You know, a lot of people would think, well, well, why are what are they doing in there? These guys should be punished. That punishment model doesn't work. But right. what works is caring, um, love, compassion, empathy. And you guys are bringing that into us and in turn uh, receiving it back as well. And um, just a profound transformation has happened. So what happened when, when Lisa Lean came and, and, and when does her story come out? Um, and and what, what were you able to capture with her? With her? Lisa, Lisa Ling is, is fierce. She's fierce compassion, you know, and uh, I was suspicious, you know, um, Hollywood, you connect names, you think, ah, it's glitter, it's prize, it's fluff, whatever. I started watching some of her material, which is really steeped in social justice. She's got a vision. And ironically, um, the first contact I had with Lisa Ling was through, um, well, Jason Bryant and you and Crop and the guys we know inside. But there was a phone call one day, and I'll let me explain because it was kind of funny. I was teaching. Oh, and there was a, a message um, just, you know, hey, um, this is Lisa Ling. I'm wondering about your program. And so I like ran to his classroom and he's teaching and I'm like banging on the door. <laughs> he's like, what? I'm like, Lisa Ling, she left a message. She left a message. <laughs> she wants to do a, a show on us. So, um, and then from there, like Jim was saying, you know, she's so well known. You just never know what to expect from people of fame. And she has got to be one of the most down to earth and, oh. and fierce, fierce. I don't know how she sleeps because she has got so much compassion for so many different things. And um, we are, I just so, so grateful that she has, you know, latched onto a liking to our program and just, you know, such an advocate for what we're doing. And we're very, very grateful for her and her producers and directors and everybody that was involved in that, in that filming. It was, um, again, it's part, they're part of our family now and we're texting, how are you guys doing? And, on each other's Instagram and, and it's just, it's been a really great relationship and we're really, really looking forward to when, when that airs. Yeah. I don't know yet. It, it'll be powerful, Richard. And I credit the power to our brothers in blue and these fine Palma students who come from really good parents. We're just a conduit. We, we, we connect great people together and sit back and go how wonderful it is, you know? Um, but it's uh, it's so powerful actually, you know, Lisa Ling said she went to her producers and was trying maybe even get more time or a longer filming or whatever, because this one touched her uniquely. She's been very clear on that a number of times in front of camera, how powerful this was. So she's been in 14 different prisons. She's traveled around the room, uh, around the world, uh, visiting uh, carceral populations to different places. But she says what uh, happened there at CTF Soldad, what was recorded there was like for her, the event, you know, uh, very powerful. I can think of so many guys inside who gave her artwork and greeted her and she was blown away by the environment. And you and Jason and Ted and I can go on and on. James uh, uh, Willick. I mean, I can name so many of our brothers in blue who really uh, created something special at CTF Soledad. We just pray alas and it grows because it's 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 peaceful. It's profound. It's rehabilitation. It's restorative justice at its finest. Right. And and um, all heart goes out to the men inside. I just hope they're given the voice and um, and respect for the human beings. They are uh, making amends in profound ways. You know, um, Ted is my closest friend. 
Ted Gray, he's also executive director of the crop organization. And Lisa, Lisa Ling and her husband, Dr. Paul Song, went to visit him inside San Quentin yeah. before he was commuted by the governor. And he shared, he spent a, a good part of the visit sharing about um, uh, Palma, the exercises in empathy, um, his uh, uh, co-defendant and brother, uh, Jason Bryant. And and she she was intrigued. She started, like you said, with the students leaning in. She leaned in and she pursued the story. And um, she's come to know Jason. And part of the part of the filming had to do with the life of Jason. Would you would you talk about how you were able to talk to the warden and this unprecedented thing of the warden allowing two uh, uh, guys in blue who are yeah. incarcerated to leave the prison to go speak at your school? Yeah, well, I give me a lot of credit. She's fierce too, you know. And uh, we met with Warden. We said, Warden, uh, to give him credit, you know, he said, "Give me a challenge." And so we said, "Okay, here's our challenge, Warden. We want a couple of guys from this program out to come to Palma School and give a presentation in our chapel." And he, and he, oh, that's a challenge for sure. And next thing I know, he had all the suits in there. All these guys come in, you know, different administrators from the prison, and uh, they had their arms crossed and, oh, we can't do this kind of thing. Um, but we persisted, Ward persisted, and then we had uh, two fine men, um, Alfredo Ortega, we call him Freddie, um, and Jason Bryant, who we've talked a lot about, come to Palma School. And we were told it's unprecedented. It hasn't happened in California where lifers were able to get out of the facility to come speak at a school like this. It had to be cased. We had all these security people come out the day before. They were looking around our school. Um, and the day this thing went down, there were all these vans and security that showed up. And then our students were treated to both Jason and Freddie speaking in our chapel. And they had to walk up to the podium, the lectern there, shackled, right? And these are guys we know. And these are guys our students had interacted with inside. And to see them shackled, that was hard. That was really hard. Right. Uh, we, we know them as human beings. They came in like animals uh, shackled like that and dragging their feet or whatnot with a look of fear on their face about all this. And uh, it was a profound moment. They said profound things. Right. And there's profound contrition, too. You know, we work with, um, you know, parents and murdered children. We have a relationship with Cheryl Ward, who lost uh, her husband to murder. Her daughter was raped. She tells the story. She talks about forgiveness. She found it in her heart to forgive. You know, they're an essential piece of restorative justice, too, that, um, you know, they've experienced things that no heart should ever experience. And Jason and Alfredo, Alfredo talk openly about that. I don't have enough sorries in me. You know, we don't work with men who uh, are not, aren't taking responsibility. Um, and so that's a lesson to our guys, too, right. about own things, own them. Right. Um, that was a very profound day when they came in our chapel. Yeah. Perhaps we could uh, show show that uh, show the video one day, or or maybe after it airs, on Lisa Ling's um, show. This is life um, on our on our on our Facebook and Instagram Instagram and um, YouTube account. Uh, you can find the prison post on YouTube and also the, on Facebook, the prison post and and um, crop organization on Instagram and creating restorative opportunities and programs on Facebook. Jim, uh, Mia, thank you for sharing. What's next for you, though? What's what's next? What's next for you? We know that we're partnering with you. Um, the Prison Post is sponsored by the Crop Organization, and we have a we have a de definitely a a business uh, um, a collaboration going on in Hope. And so, what's next? What's 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 the latest? Zoom. Well, we're zooming. Uh, we'll be zooming inside, and this supposedly is unprecedented too. We'll actually um, have access to our brothers in blue inside on camera in a Zoom. 
a few of them, a few of them yeah. to begin with, but hopefully that will grow. And so the idea is if we can have, again, classroom of the world, if we can have classroom experiences inside, if that can take off at CTF Soledad, maybe some of the other yards, and then go to some other institutions. Salinas Valley has already expressed some interest in that. And then maybe we uh, take it up to San Quentin. I know they have some wonderful programs going on there right now, but we can expand. And the idea is to have the friendship and mentorship and all that going on with the men inside, uh, with boys who are becoming men. Right. And then we need to look into young women. Right. Girls becoming women in the women facilities. It's not just uh, Jim Crow. It's Jane Crow, too. Right. We got we got to look out for everybody. Um, the other thing, too, is this book. I know you're familiar with this book because your name's on it. And you did not ask me to do this. You wouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> Men built for others, though. This is an exceptional book. Richard, you had a hand in this. Um, so many of the guys we know created this. They're telling their stories. Their stories about transformation. Their stories about hope, faith, and peace. I've used this in class, and uh, the funds for this go to Palma School to help students stay at Palma School or enroll in Palma School who might not have the money. You guys set up an incredible scholarship there, a foundation based on the proceeds from this book. So we want to get this book out there too, uh, Men Built for Others. Um, and have other schools consider using it in their curriculum. I'm working with another college prep right now who might be using this in their theology classes. We'd like to see it at universities because they are those tales of transformation and empathy. I mean, if you want to talk about empathy, right, this is the book that gets us there. So uh, I want to thank you, Richard, personally for your work on this, all of CROP. Um, you guys are nothing but, but hope and love. And we're, we're so thankful to be in relationship with you. Very much so. Thank you. And it was four, four of our five uh, directors uh, put the book together, Men Built for Others. You can find it on Amazon. And, and Jim's right, Mia's right, that 100% of the, of the proceeds from the book go to uh, fund a scholarship at Palma School. And lastly, I would like to just invite you guys back to share the miracles that have taken place, uh, at least two of them, with Sion and his dad, Frank Green. Um, and we come back and share the men built for other scholarship story, the vision that started with, with Ted, um, of, uh, creating the scholarship and us asking you if you would be willing to, um, go into, to your, to your administrators and to your deans and presidents and take a shot to believe on us, to be able to raise money from inside of a prison to fund a scholarship. And, um, it's a, it's a profound story, but I'd love to have you guys back maybe with the greens to share the whole story. Thank, Thank you so much. So much to Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim and Mia. This has been the, another episode of the Prison Post. We love you guys. Love you too, man. Love Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. God bless. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to the Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.